Welcome to podcast number one. I am truly hoping we can get this thing on the air. <laughs> uh, we've had a few misfires there with um, audio difficulties. But welcome to podcast number one. We are recording here in Jeff Shiwi's studio in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Jeff has graciously hosted a couple of members of the Lightroom team to come back to Chicago and meet with several of the photographers that gave initial input uh, into the Lightroom project. Was that three years ago, Jeff? Three and a half years ago? Yeah, well, I think so. December uh, 2002. Well, that was when you first came to visit. That's true. And, uh, that was when we were doing image editing. Yes. All three, I think. Okay, so we've got um, Jeff Shiwi here in the studio. His, Hi, George. His studio. Hi, Jeff. Mark Hamburg, uh, lead engineer. Is that your title? I'm founder of the Lightroom team. Founder of the Lightroom <laughs> team. Okay. <laughs> And Kevin T. Scudder, the print engineer, and now working on metadata and all kinds of things. I All sorts of things. Since print is wrapping up. And we're going to try and um, talk a bit about print and color management here today. So, um, Mark, I just want to kick this off by asking you a couple of questions about uh, how did we get to where we are in print? I love the way it works. It's simple, it's easy, it's fast. It doesn't do everything in the ways I expect it to. But the users are loving it. Tell me, what was your thinking in, uh, and Kevin, you know, feel free to jump in anytime. Okay. What was your thinking in the design that ultimately took shape in the print module? Was it just to make it How as easy I'm, as possible? Yeah, or I mean, this was, or? the fundamental thing with print was that printing in other applications, which will remain nameless, is... <laughs> um, you mean Photoshop? No, just other applications. <laughs> other applications that shall remain nameless is far more difficult than it ought to be. And there are a lot of people out there who have large libraries of images and they've possibly gone out and bought expensive printers and trying to get all the steps right to get you from the, that library of images to the print to ink going out onto the printer resulting, well, you know, they've done a few prints, but then it's just too much of a pain. It all just sits there. So... Uh -huh. Um, we might be talking about an advanced amateur that you know quite well. <laughs> okay, yeah, that would be my father. Has, like an expensive, father. has an expensive Epson printer in his basement that gets almost no use. So there is clearly a, we need to do something that you know, actually makes this process more reasonable so that you know, we can generate more consumables business for the uh, printer companies, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> use more ink. Epson will love the new print capabilities. <laughs> We will help you dump more ink onto the onto pages. So that was one of the things. As for why it works the way it does or how it got there, mostly what we did is we just kept pounding on Kevin and making him iterate over and over and over again on designs. And Kevin would come back with stuff, no. and there would be, oh, that sort of works, but what if we did this? Move this over here. Yeah. <laughs> now try this, and then let's try this, and then let's try this. Uh, we didn't like any of those. A lot of experimentation <laughs> on the Lightroom team. Yeah. So the contact sheets work great, and the draft mode printing, I think, is one of, the, one of the key things that speeds things up, at least for my workflow. So tell me what happens when you turn on that draft mode printing button. Well, the, uh, uh, instead of rendering each image from, uh, from the original RAW file, it will go and take the uh, largest, um, largest uh, rendered preview that it has in its cache and use that instead. And if you've let your cache render out fully, that uh, really should be enough uh, enough resolution to produce a good-looking print for 
any sort of contact sheet. Um, if you're printing one image per page, then yeah, in full page, then that may not be enough. But um, but in terms of contact sheets, it does uh, speed things up quite a bit and produces acceptable results. Yeah. Well, I've, what I've you don't done... get that way is you don't get the output sharpening, you don't get the color management, and so uh... forth. Because we're basically all of those come in as part of the rendering process, and we're essentially skipping the rendering process and using pre-rendered versions that were designed for screen display. So um, if you're not getting the color management, is it... Well, you're getting color managed results, but you can't go in and say, change which profile you want to render to. Um, you're going to get... It, it is color managed drawing that we're, that we're using in talking to the printer, but you, know, well, you basically have to let the printer do the color management. Nice. Actually, that's not true. Oh, you've changed it. No, it's been... That's been working all along. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, color management does work with that, and I can it's, I can preserve that by by keeping keeping the code in there that I have right now. Okay. So the only issue is that it's already clipped to the gamut that was used for the uh, cache to, because to we, we, we've the already done, we've done a rendering into the Adobe RGB. Yeah, into what we're. Well, if we doing contact sheets, that shouldn't really. Yeah, matter. for contact sheets, right. it's fine. Yeah. Well, I've printed pictures using both the yeah. draft mode and the regular mode side by side. I can't see the difference. Of course, oh. they weren't heavily saturated images, or oh, it's it's going to be really subtle, really I mean, subtle. in terms of what you yeah. see. I mean, so and you don't get any output sharpening when you do draft mode printing. Correct. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I don't have a great. But you do get sharpening. you do get <laughs> what you will get that you don't get. You'll get a bad version of output sharpening from the standpoint that will try and render things actually at a larger resolution than you ask for. When you do standard printing, what you get in you type in a resolution and we will actually resample the images to that resolution. When you do draft mode printing, we're just going to pick the smallest image that we've got that's bigger than that, and by drawing something that's bigger than you actually need, you get a certain amount of crunchiness that comes with it that looks sort of like sharpening until you take it really too far. Now, are there any, any uh, new features coming up for B3 or B4 that uh, in print that we should be looking for, or is print more or less finished? Uh, well, B3 will um, polish the uh, color management a little more. The rendering intents were uh, broken in the previous uh, builds, and those are fully functional now. And uh, otherwise, it's a lot of polish and just tweaking the look and uh, streamlining things a little more, and and hopefully we'll be uh, pretty well pretty well polished for for the end of B three. Jeff, have you played with printing much? Uh, recently, what I've been doing is comparing the output from uh, Lightroom and the other unnamed application commonly called Photoshop. <laughs> I've been able to achieve uh, parity. Uh, the one thing I would say is that uh, because of the way the printing presets are set up and um, uh, being able to set up for a uh, run of prints versus a document-by-document document setting, uh, being able to print out uh, a lot of work is a lot easier out of Lightroom than it is in other uh, uh, applications. Now, we're, we're looking at something to possibly make it even more streamlined. It seems like we might be able to, correct me if I'm wrong, we might be able to save some of the driver-specific settings to make it a one-button print job. Is that right, or are we not going to be there yet? We would like to. Uh, this is not something the OS makes easy at this point. So we're working on it, but so no So we're, no we're working on trying to lean on, you know... The powers that be. The, yes. 
to say, you know, we would like to be able to do this and there are key reasons why this would be really useful, that you could pick a preset and it would know that that meant this printer and all the rest of that, but I mean, if you look at the standard print experience that you see in, well, not just the other unnamed application, but you know, pretty much all other unnamed applications, you can't access any of the settings for how the printer's supposed to be until you hit print and then the next step out of that is to actually commit to print to sending data to the printer and that means that that's sort of you know past where we were and it's you know it's already headed downstream so it's we're trying to find a way to get more of that moved upstream so that we can capture that and store it in a preset ah, working on that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if a photographer starts up Lightroom and doesn't know anything about color management and just imports some images and pushes the print button, will they get acceptable output? And if not, what should they be doing to the minimal amount of configuration to be able to get good output? The minimal amount of configuration would be uh, just going to the print module, um, selecting whatever template they want, uh, leaving the uh, color management as managed by printer and when printing just make sure that the uh, the printer color settings are set to color sync which which is it's usually not not by default it's usually on the printer color settings but um, selecting the right paper and mm -hmm. and that normal stuff and, and printing okay so in yeah. the printer driver you should you have to tell the printer to use color sync and not to go use whatever m magic conversion they have to go from essentially unknown rgb to what they think will make a nice print and specifying color sync and the paper will cause the printer driver the, to pick up the, the right profile yeah the printer driver should then be picking up the right profile and doing the right thing with that and that seems to work fairly well and i think on more modern printer drivers, it's even getting to where, well, we can't tell them what paper to use, we can start to pass down the hint that says, you really want to use color sync here. But the printer manufacturers have a long history of doing sort of their custom rendering based on you know, unspecified RGB space data that they're getting that they will then go and make what they think is a nice print out of it. But So better to use color sync. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, what's your feeling about soft proofing? Gotta have it. <clears throat> Gotta have it. Yes. Uh, the primary reason I like soft proofing is uh, to be able to predict what the image is going to look like when the ink hits paper and, and you see the reduced uh, dynamic range of the final print so that you can go back in and fine tune and tweak the tone curve as well as the, uh, the color rendering to a certain extent in the other unnamed app called Photoshop. Uh, being able to soft-proof and be able to predict what the image is going to look like when it hits paper is uh, it's a combination of being able to allow you to make better decisions about how to fine-tune the image as well as being able to be a little bit more uh, conservative with the, uh, your consumables. One of the things that soft-proofing really allows you to do is to be more economical with your ink and paper. You don't have to make a whole bunch of prints uh, like you would in the darkroom uh, in the old days, the, the cow hoof days. Remember film? You bet I do. No, I don't. <laughs> um, uh, Short-term memory, you know, mm -hmm. gray beard. Uh, but the thing that I really like doing is to be able to predict what the image is going to look like and basically save the uh, ink and paper for 
use on those images that are already fine-tuned. With photographers, it's in essence, it's all about the print. And the better you can get the final print, the happier photographers are. But accurate soft proofing is going to be dependent upon having a accurately calibrated and profiled monitor, right? Yeah. And having a good profile for the printer and which you need you need a good profile for the printer no matter what to print. You're going to need a good profile basically that takes you back from the printer to the display, which isn't critical for printing but is critical for soft proofing. Um, but the thing that I would and say... And you just have to get used to be the fact that paper and screens just fundamentally look different. Yeah. The thing I would say is that uh, in recent years, though, the quality of the profiles that come with the printers have greatly improved and they've been made aware of the fact that being able to use soft proofing requires a good back to display mm -hmm. uh, reference and so soft proofing is getting better and better. With Lightroom's relatively lightweight color management environment it becomes a lot easier to get predictable and consistent results but still, you want to be able to see what the print's going to look like before you actually push the print button. Sure. God, I'd refer to some of that's just the pre-disappointment. Yes. Function. Yes. But we can know, have it, a pre-disappointment feature. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, you know, predisposed to being yeah. disappointed, and depressed, I suppose mm -hmm. that's the case. But <laughs> on the other hand, I'm kind of optimistic. You know? Yeah. Uh, I like stuff when it uh, comes out the way. Mm -hmm. I soft proofed it. Yeah. So Jeff, I have a question for you. If the user does not have a custom profile that they built for their printer, would you recommend letting the printer manage the color, or would you recommend using or selecting one of the profiles that came with the printer as a custom profile and printing out to the printer and turning off color management at the driver level? Well, that's a complicated question, Kevin. The ideal is to have the default profiles for the paper and the print driver itself um, the default profiles to be an accurate description of the of the printer. In the past that has been less often the case but I think all the print printer manufacturers Epson, HP, and Canon are realizing that having a very accurate profile that displays for both soft proofing and accurate output transforming for the final printed color, uh, a lot of users used to think that you know the reason that the profiles that came with the printer sucked so bad was that users would end up having to use more ink and paper just to get a good print. But I think they're they're moving beyond that mm -hmm. stage where mm -hmm. uh, the most recent uh, printers that Epson has come out with the K3 uh, Ultra Chrome printers, all of the profiles are much much better. So it helps eliminate the burden from the standpoint of the user. Ultimately, if you're using third-party papers in any of the printers, you're going to have to have custom profiles. Yes. Yeah. If you're using uh, specialty uh, drivers, such as the advanced black and white mode in the uh, new Epson printers, that's a, a non-color managed environment. It's more of a rip scenario than it is for a color managed environment. But I do think that the profiles are getting better so in answer to your question, if you don't have a custom profile, it seems like the, the current uh, Lightroom print module is using ColorSync the correct way for a change. <laughs> the default profile is then selected from within the print driver 
via color sync, and that does seem to work. Yeah. My preference still, I'm really anal about making sure that each and every step of the process of printing uh, is accurate with as little user error as possible. And I still make mistakes printing, but I like to be able to double check everything. At that point, what I'd love to be able to do is to save it out as a template or a preset on a per printer or a per paper type setup. But I do think that ColorSync is working well. Uh, I've had excellent results uh, selecting the custom profile and turning the color management off mm -hmm. uh, in yeah. the print driver. Yeah, you can also use the uh, ColorSync utility. It's not particularly well publicized, but you can use that to change what the default profiles are that the printer uses. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you think it gets messy under the hood, yeah. um, try doing that one of these times. Yeah. And, and, you, know, you don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll have to do a whole tutorial on how to do that. No, you don't, yeah. want, to, you yeah. don't want to do that. I mean, this is one of those things that we're thinking, you know, what you really should be able to do as a user is, you know, have one place that you go in, you don't have to tell every application which profile to use. You want to go in and say something associated with the printer says, this paper, this profile. You almost can do that using the color sync utility, but I wouldn't say that it's a particularly uh, straightforward experience using it, and it's certainly not particularly well publicized or documented. And <laughs> well, extremely... it certainly isn't documented because yeah. the ColorSync product manager at the time didn't yeah. even know you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> the unnamed ColorSync product manager. Yeah. Okay, well, um, probably enough about color management. Let's talk about the possibility of third-party modules for printing. Are we looking at any third parties that possibly might uh, be able to write a module that enhances the printing to their specific printer or possibly as a print service that goes out to the web? And in terms of who we're actually talking to as developers... No, no, don't have to name names. That, that's, well, the, I, those... well I, I'm going to choose not to name names because that's actually uh, Tom Hogarty, the product manager, is the one who's worrying about who to talk to on that. But one of the things to know is that the print module in Lightroom is basically a third party could write essentially the same thing if we when we get around to documenting the APIs internally, but it's... It is a separable component, and it just talks to the rest of the system using the, the rest of Lightroom using the same APIs generally that we plan to document in some form. So a print manufacturer could write their own module, which has yeah. specialized features well, for their yeah, printer. George, I think you raise an interesting uh, point. Um, a lot of users on the forums have been asking about, quote, plugins, and one of the strengths of Photoshop uh, was the extensibility and the additional functionality you could add via plugin or filter. Right. And um, a lot of people are asking about, you know, being able to put plugins into Lightroom. Um, the plugin concept is probably not going to fly too well with yeah. Mark and the, and the uh, engineers, but the concept of third party modules, uh, I'd be interested mm -hmm. in hearing Mark's uh, opinion on. Uh, uh, how important and how much flexibility there's going to be for third-party modules, not just the print. And for for modules, I mean everything that you actually see in Lightroom. Well, there are some fundamental pieces like the bar across the top of the identity plate and the module picker and so forth that are sort of owned by the app, but. All of the stuff that happens inside, how the panels are populated, the library, 
develop print and slideshow, the entire user interface to those are built as modules and are built using essentially the same things that we expect to eventually reveal to developers. So people should be able to build first-class citizens in building smaller plugins that say added functionality into another module. And we've thought some about it, but it ends up requiring... That then means that we have to figure out what are the interesting ways in which to extend individual modules, and we've right. worried more about just having the application is extensible in terms of you can create additional modules that can work with the same set of images and send them out to you know to whatever sort of output you want to or do additional organizational things with them. For instance, I've heard uh, people request the ability to put their own metadata template in the library or uh, some people have thought maybe a third party would want to put their own sharpening panel in the develop module or the export module. Yeah, I mean, doing your own metadata um, is probably more or less reasonable. Well, if you were working with the same standard fields that we were exposing right now, it would be straightforward if you wanted to do things and have them carry through and do essentially custom XMP fields. You know, that's one of those, those areas where we haven't looked quite at how that would be extended. You know, doing custom sharpening in develop means that not that you're plugging in, it's that you essentially want to replace pieces of mm -hmm. the raw engine and um, that becomes you know, the raw engine wasn't built with that in mind. We thought it would be about it as you know, a potentially interesting direction long term, but that hasn't come up, uh, but it hasn't really worked its way in. I mean, so, we're built on top of Camera Raw, right. and Camera Raw is sort of a very well-defined path from raw data to output pixels. And we've stuck a few extra things in, but that's, you know, Camera Raw isn't built generally to be extensible. We're able to stick things in because we go in and we actually change the code to Camera Raw. Uh -huh. <laughs> you have that luxury. So yeah. potentially third-party modules after version 1 ships but extending existing modules might be more difficult. That's uh, Yeah, that's going to be something where we're going to have to look at where the opportunities are in that regard mm -hmm. um, and where the key th points to put extensions in. One of the things that is probably the holdup on doing anything with respect to third-party modules is, though, I mean, everything is written in a way that we've sort of expected would be extensible. Our feeling is once we document to other people how to do this, we can't then break that right, and as Very long good. as we're in, oh, we probably <laughs> will. <happened> in the <laughs> Never. <laughs> you know, if you could find a digital darkroom acquire module that ran on a PowerPC Mac under OS ten, I suspect Photoshop would still run it. Probably because they've never gotten around to taking out the code that <laughs> that supports those, but. Um, <laughs> And, of course, you couldn't find one of those, but the point is, you know, Photoshop actually has a fairly strong history of trying to avoid breaking plugins. Uh, other products over the years haven't necessarily made that commitment, but I'd like to, on Lightroom, make a similar commitment that, you know, if we say, you know, this is how you write something, then that's our commitment that we're going to try really hard not to break that. And right now we have the luxury working internally if someone says, oh, you know, we put this together the wrong way, I've got to change this, and I will go change the all the modules that talk to it and get them mm. all updated, and I don't have to worry about preserving the thing that we've now decided doesn't work as well. Um, so once you write that SDK, it's sort of like a marriage contract. 
You, yeah. used, you used the commitment word. I, yeah. I know. Well, how would you know that, George? You've never been married. <laughs> no, but I've looked at the contract. <laughs> so you've actually studied prenuptial contracts, have you? Actually, you know, my I don't know if this will end up in the uh, edited podcast, but my idea of an I ideal so. marriage is a, a, a two-year contract with an option to renew. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of like a lease. <laughs> a lease, yeah. A lease. Temporary lease, exactly. A leasehold instead of... Uh, uh, well, actually, one of the things I was going to ask you, Mark, uh, since the core raw processing functionality is based directly on camera raw, you got some uh, ups and extras uh, that you've added, the auto grayscale, whatever you end mm-hmm. up calling that, yeah, and uh, the HSL sliders and the, and the uh, curve sliders. Shadow luminance, some, highlight yeah. luminance, yeah. all good stuff. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is... Uh, uh, what well, was Thomas's reactions? Thomas Noel, the guy that wrote uh, uh, the primary engineer on Camera Raw. What was Thomas's reaction to going around there and messing with his uh, code? Well, he seemed to be more or less fine with us messing with it. Part of this comes out of, you know, we started as more of a research project, and you know, we are out of Adobe Labs on this. And so we said, okay, let's take Camera Raw and extend it in new ways. And the tone curve stuff came out of Camera Raw. It sort of grown from it had brightness and contrast, and then it gained a tone curve on top. But we sort of, you know, we were in the position of saying, well, if we were revisiting this, how would we put those together? Because they're really doing, they're all part of the same process. Thomas wasn't incredibly forthcoming on things. There was one round at one point of, well, you know, do you want to pick up any of these things? And I said, oh, well, maybe. I'm not sure whether we're going to do that. And that was, you know, I think that was sometime last summer. Um, as we were getting ready to go out with the public beta, and this, we were worrying about names for the splash screen. I said, well, you know, we are built on top of Camera Raw. We should do something with respect to Thomas. We'd had him in the scrolling credits, but, you know. Sent to Thomas the message. So, you know, we're working on the credits for Lightroom. Do you want to be A, on the splash screen, B, in the scrolling credits, C, you want nothing to do with the bastardization we've made of your code? (laughs) And he picked A, so presumably (laughs) it was at least... uh, He felt that he didn't feel that we'd made a total uh, mess of what he'd done. Well, one of the things last year at the Great Lakes Digital which is the uh, kind of the Photoshop soup to nuts that is held in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan every year. Yeah, kind of can't, wait. can't wait to go to that this yes. year. Yes, uh, want to get some of the Lightroom engineers to come. But uh, one of the things that some of us were really pushing on because Epson had just come out with this advanced black and white mode printer and there were other rips and, and more photographers were getting into black and white. Uh, trying to get black and white functionality in camera raw. Yeah, you could take the saturation slider all the way down to zero, but it wasn't a very elegant solution for converting from color to black and white. And uh, the auto black and white conversion that you put in, when I talked to Thomas, I said, what did you think about that black and white thing? Because I've been pushing on him to, to do better black and white conversions in camera raw. And he said, well, that's kind of interesting. And from Thomas, that's you know relatively high praise. That's kind of interesting. I do think that black and white, now that we can actually make good black and white prints, and we're shooting with digital cameras that cover you know basically the entire color spectrum, visible spectrum, that getting from color to black and white, as opposed to shooting black and white film and processing it and making mm-hmm. darkroom prints, I think now I think a lot of people will be... Uh, kind of revisiting black and white as a uh, 
of style, of digital black and white. And now that you can get uh, relatively neutral black and white prints from the new printers with less metamorism, it's becoming even more interesting. Yeah. And uh, just to bring that circle back around to the print discussion, since we do want to do podcasts for the develop module and the black and white conversions and uh, third-party module development. I should point out that Kevin is the one who actually wrote the code to make the auto black and white uh, calculation. Oh, really? oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's very cool. It's very cool. But we're going to visit that in another, in another <laughs> podcast. I want to ask one more question before we wrap this up and go speak with some of the photographers that are coming to visit here today. And that is about uh, how we might extend the print module in the future. I'm hearing a few photographers asking about print package type of features, maybe putting multiple, one image up on a page in multiple sizes, that kind of thing. I notice we don't really have that capability in Lightroom today. Um, you know, well, one of the early directions of the print module was to, uh, the way it started off actually, was just dragging an image onto your page and putting it anywhere you want, any size you want, and then you would just kind of make your collage of, of images and add a page and put more images on, do everything by hand that way. We ended up abandoning that approach later on in favor of a more of a template-based and uh, cell-based uh, layout because it was, um, it was it, it served more people's needs at that time than, than just the fully freeform layout. It's more productive, better automation. Yes, yeah. But we do see a great need for bringing back that freeform aspect as a different mode or, or something into the, uh, the uh, print module. In particular, being able to lay out maybe uh, several uh, four by six images and uh, a bunch of smaller images all on the same page and have it print out just like picture package, um, the same picture filling each cell yeah. on, on the page. Yeah, I, picture package stuff sort of sits on that boundary between freeform layout. I mean, what we've got right now is, you know, we found how hard we, you know, how far we could push basically a basic grid, rows and columns sort of thing that comes out of contact sheets and so forth and discover that you can do a lot of fairly creative things in it if you go for interesting cell dimensions. Um, Picture package is sort of the next thing that's, okay, well, we can still think we're going to pour images into this and we'll do one per page. And then there's sort of, beyond that, there's freeform layout. So, you know, there, there's a range of things that we're certainly looking at, you know, that mm -hmm. we're looking at. And so we've got some code for freeform layout somewhere laying around. And we've got some code for the old shuffle module, which, uh, yes, Lightroom was not developed between November and December of 2005 in response to a certain unnamed application. Uh, we did have a freeform uh, shuffle module, a light table module. Um, what are the chances some of these pieces of code might sometime be released as um, sample code for third-party module development? I mean, we've thought about releasing the light table for the, the shuffle code as, as sample code. I mean, this just gets back to the question of how much commitment we want to make in terms of these are the APIs that things work with. Yeah. The freeform layout you know, might well actually see its way into just becoming a full-fledged feature at some point, if not in 1.0, then revisiting hint, hint, in 2.0. Yes, I'd like yeah. that. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That and if we found a, a, an inspiration about why a virtual light table actually works really well, because I mean, we built this thing and we used it and discovered that it really stinks when you start sorting any sort of large 
shoot with this sort of thing because it's much more inconvenient to use a mouse to move things around than it is to grab slides on a light table and move them where you can mm -hmm. use both hands and move your head in and do all sorts of things. So it was sort of the the reaction ended up being, well, it's nice. It does it's a nice job simulating things. Doesn't really go anywhere. And well, so Mark, the thing that I would down, argue about uh, with that yeah. is that when you're dealing with relatively small numbers, say yeah. a roll of 36 frames. Well, you be, when you take the roll out of your uh, digital camera, the, the roll film yeah. out of rolls, your digital rolls camera. Are, rolls are 2 gig now or 4 gig. <laughs> no, gig. But I'm, talking, yeah. I'm talking about the metaphor of shuffle was slides on a light box. That's and true. And yeah. when you're dealing with 36 frames, that's a manageable number. If you've got a day's worth of shoot, yeah. A lot of times, what photographers would do is get the film back uh, uncut, unmounted, so you could deal with whole big rows and strips. Yes, mm -hmm. I agree that 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 the shuffle was not particularly useful for hundreds yeah. of images, but it was a lot of fun to kind of like sort through and and, yeah. and work with a, a manageable amount, twenty, thirty. Yeah. And I think it was mostly because we were busy worrying more about what do I do about the fact that Jay just went out and shot 500 images in the course of a couple hours, and Shuffle is not helping me here. Yeah. <laughs> Shuffle right. is sort of a, a, an interesting place that you go to, but it's, you know, and that similar sort of functionality, it's been interesting to see that as it's popped up in, you know, other applications, is basically instead of being treated as a way station on the on the way on the sorting process is basically just a dead end that you go in and you can move things around and lay them out and but that's what it's for it's you, not from you a, talk a, a about tool that tool for making judgments you talk about that mark and one of the things that i think george's podcast listeners would be interested in finding out is uh, if you guys actually know how to shoot now, I, I, Kevin's got his uh, uh, digital camera on, and I know that you've been armed with uh, a couple of digital cameras now. And, armed and with a dangerous weapon. <laughs> armed with a dangerous weapon, yeah. Unlicensed, yeah. as it is <laughs> so far. I mean, you're not a fully licensed photographer. Um, but the fact is that a couple of years ago, uh, all the Photoshop engineers got a special treat for a Christmas bonus. They all got digital cameras. And then, of course, then all of a sudden they're all photographers. Well, then they started learning the true pain points that commercial professional photographers were facing. Tell us about that first time that you shot four gigs worth of uh, digital captures in one day. Greg Gorman's Yeah, it. is it? Yeah, it's actually, yeah, I, I was trying to think whether I actually hit four gigs there. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, hit, I remember I hit like 450 images and at Greg's studio, and this was the point, this was probably the day that Shuffle died, essentially, um, because we're coming back from Greg's studio, and I think this was actually the next day on the airplane, and I'm trying to sit down and look through the set of images with Sandy Alves, who was our UI designer at the time, and look through, and it's just, okay, this is just not doing it. It's, you know, it, it's, yeah. I'm moving 450 images around on a 12-inch laptop screen, and basically they're all just in each other's way. Yeah, well, that's um, the problem that yeah. photographers face all the time. So that became... So it was interesting that you experienced the exact same pain that we experienced. Yeah, so that was my first, yeah, really volume-sorting experience. My previous... Large volume had more to do with the gee, a gig doesn't go as far as uh, as it used to because I was out 
doing some shooting while uh, at Point Lobos while my car was being worked on and realized I'd only bothered to bring one CF card with me. And so all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I've been shooting wrong. Okay, it's time to start shooting JPEG because I'm running out of space here. <laughs> well, one of the things I was going to tell you is that uh, uh, on our recent uh, uh, photographic expedition to Antarctica, Seth Resnick and I were faced with a situation where uh, we developed a whole new uh, word. It's mm -hmm. called gigage. Yeah. And we ended up shooting major gigage. Uh, <laughs> in one 20 hour period, I ended up shooting 27 gigabytes worth of images. Now and you shoot with a bigger camera. Well, a, I was shooting with a digital Rebel and with a okay. 1DS. Okay. So, yeah, some of it was 16 megapixels, some of it was 8 megapixels. Okay. Still doesn't matter, it was still major gigage. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the big challenge was just getting the, the, the darn images copied off the cards. Fortunately, I had a lot of Lexar flashcards mm -hmm. so that I didn't have to constantly go running inside to download the cards. But at the end of the day, I had to download all the cards. And, yeah. and the whole process of ingestion. Can That's where the assistants come in, right? Yeah, well, you're in Antarctica, I'm not going to pay to bring a system. But the whole thing is that, that learning the pain points, mm -hmm. you know, Kevin, I was asking Kevin before, you know, uh, uh, he's got a 4,000 on his desk and, and uh, we're going to try to get him uh, a better printer. The whole joy of making digital capture mm -hmm. and uh, the joy of making uh, final output prints is a driving motivation for you guys. It's not just that you're geeky software engineers. You know, you actually yeah. want to be able to make images yeah. like we do. Yeah. Well, everybody on the team is very, very interested in photography yeah. and learning lots about digital capture and shooting for themselves. We've talked about doing some um, engineers' web photo galleries to show some of the pictures, and we might... In some cases, yes, but I think you ought to hire a third-party editor to pick. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll look yeah. at that, Jeff. So we have certainly... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing yeah, picks for things while it's you know, talking about... I haven't quite hit your Antarctica gigage situation. The peak for me was last fall over the course of two days shooting a music event in Santa Cruz. I shot over 1,200 images and, and was essentially, while it was going on, trying to do live, swap the cards and start one downloading while I'm continuing to shoot with the next one and get... You know, at breaks in the event, get slideshows up and running, all out of you know, a, a version of Lightroom from last October. Yeah, um, being a digital photographer is kind of a pain in the ass, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the two things I came away from that event actually were, one, get someone on the team to act as an assistant next year when I do this, um, so that I have someone else who can actually... Someone on the team, huh? Someone who can run the computer. Actually, I, I, I was figuring your QE nemesis, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's um, called slave labor, by the way. Yeah. And two, because I was doing almost everything with just two lenses... Take two cameras, so I'm not doing lens swaps all the time. Well, that's the funny thing. I mean, in the in the old days, last millennium, yeah. you know, a photographer would never think about going out with only one camera. A lot of times, you'd have a black and white camera, you'd have a color camera. But these days, you know, the cost of the cameras are pretty expensive. So, yes, you do need to have redundancies. And, well, and plus today, that well, one one camera fills many roles in that. And that uh, the 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 ISO is is adjustable, and you know there is there is no such thing as a as a black and white 
digital camera, except for you know a couple of exceptions. But um, for the most part, uh, if you're shooting black and white, you're, you're still using a color camera, yeah. And, yeah. and and so on. But also just for backup and being able to hand off the camera and keep shooting, hand yeah. off the camera to the system, so that they can do the downloading. Yeah. yeah. So that you can at least you can also pop the card out. So that, which takes slightly longer than handing off the camera. But yeah, for me it was the. I'm constantly worrying about trying to avoid dust as I swap between the two lenses One of the that problems, I want to use. Yeah, well, then you have to have two lenses. One of the problems yeah. that I have, quite honestly, is, uh, and this is something that would be interesting to discuss at some point in the future, but the problem I have is a lot of times when I'm handed the card back by an assistant, I put it back in, and I forget to reformat it. Now, ideally, you should format the card and the camera in which it's going to be... Yeah. Use, mm -hmm. but it would be useful to be able to put back in a, a, a preformatted card that uh, I wouldn't have to worry. The worst thing is to have a card that's already half filled from the last download mm -hmm. and then start shooting again and you know not wanting to lose the images that I've shot on top of the previous. So, download. do we want to reformat in the import? Actually, we've got we've got a number of um, workflow conversations that we're sort of uh, rambling yeah. through and evolving I mean, from one. But, <laughs> but 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 before I don't know, we bark, I don't know that we can readily yeah. reformat. We could delete the images <laughs> off the card, but I really recommend doing it in the camera. Yeah, because the do. camera will you, you can count on the camera will format the card the way the camera wants the card to be. And I wouldn't count on the cameras being robust about you know the OS went and so since took since, since Mark feels passionately about the the workflow conversation, we're going to schedule him for another one hour yeah. workflow podcast <laughs> uh, coming up with Jeff and maybe Greg Gorman and a couple of yeah. other people um, soon. But um, I think I think we have some guests waiting next door and. Um, Probably want to wrap this up. We've got a long day ahead of us here at Shiwi Studio meeting photographers who gave early input into the Shadowland project, which became Lightroom, to uh, come back and show them what we made of their input and uh, continue the beta, the beta process. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff, Mark, Kevin. Um, we'll see if we can make a podcast out of this and then do it again on a regular basis. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Thanks.